0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: Double zero refers to the fineness of the grind, so it's super fine because of that designation, which also helps make it be as smooth and glutinous as possible in the final dough. I buy it in these 55 pound bags through like a restaurant store, and I just get it shipped to me.
0: This week on the show, we go all in with a pizza making fanatic. Toby Foster talks with Pete Giordano about what it takes to make the perfect Neapolitan-style pizza at home. But first we talk with the authors of Everybody Eats, a book about food justice interventions in Greensboro, North Carolina. That's all just ahead, stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats. Confronted with a glaring social problem, like, say, food insecurity in a community, the impulse to act, to try to do something about it, comes naturally, particularly to those in the social service sector. But well-meaning plans don't always have the outcomes we hope for, especially if those plans don't involve those most affected by the issue. A new book from University of California Press focuses on food justice conversations and interventions in the city of Greensboro, North Carolina. Josephine McRobbie spoke with the authors about what they learned in their research and what questions remain to be answered.
2: Dr. Naisha Douglas and Dr. Marianne Legreco are the authors of Everybody Eats, Communication, and the Paths to Food Justice. The book is focused on food insecurity and food access programs in Greensboro, North Carolina. Between the years of 2009 and 2019, Greensboro was named on the Food Action and Research Center's list of major U.S. cities experiencing food hardship. It topped the list in 2015. When the two professors met, momentum was already growing to address issues of food disparities in the area. Some activities were centered around the historically black neighborhood of Warnersville. Here's Dr. Naisha Douglas.
3: During this time, there was a feasibility study done by Mark Smith, who's the epidemiologist at Gifford County Health Department. And so they were doing this study around key areas in Greensboro, and they did it in, in zip codes. And so one of the zip codes was the Warnesville area where they identified people who were having issues with high blood pressure, diabetes, and Um, just some of these preventable diseases.
4: So one of the things that Mark noticed was that the Warnersville neighborhood, they have the highest rates of poverty, but then also the highest rates of chronic health problems. And so he was really interested in working more closely with people who lived in that neighborhood to figure out where some of these problems and disparities and barriers might be coming from, and then what the people in the neighborhoods were really interested in focusing on as a way to address them.
3: And one of the issues was food and the access to food and how many grocery stores are in w- within a one mile radius and can people get to the grocery stores and how do they get to the grocery stores and what are they eating or what are they picking up and do they have enough money, you know, and also during that time, you know, community gardens were starting to pick up a little bit more steam where people were wanting to grow their own food, not because they were hungry, but because of health reasons, right? They wanted to go back to gardening in a way that would save them money, but also would benefit them health-wise.
4: And he invited us to become part of the conversations that were going on in Warnersville. Not long after that is when we started making news with the FRAC headlines, with the Food Research and Action Center. We were really well positioned, I think, as community groups to keep those conversations going. And we had already started to speak with folks in the neighborhood who had identified things like urban gardens and community farms, mobile farmers markets, community stores, better walking paths as things that they wanted to see in their neighborhoods. And honestly, that's how Naisha and I met was that we had started to work on implementing some of the farmers markets and mobile farmers markets ideas. And Naisha lived in the neighborhood, she'd invited been invited to become a part of some of the interventions themselves and then that's how she and I met and started to talk. Naisha was working on her PhD at Uh, University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and I was working as, at that time, an assistant professor, but then eventually associate professor at UNC Greensboro.
2: Everybody Eats contains case studies of programming in Greensboro from 2009 to 2019 that aim to address food hardship and access. The professors look at the successes and failures of these interventions through the lens of communication studies. People often underestimate the role that
4: communication plays in the community engagement, in the mobilizing of the resources, in the sustaining of the conversations. There were a couple of times when newcomers to the, to the partnerships and the relationships uh, would be facilitating conversations, and they would introduce me, and they would say, oh, and this is Marianne. She's a communication professor at UNCG. She manages our social media. And I would say, wait, wait, there's a little bit more to it than that. How are you going to handle some of those tensions? How are you going to prioritize certain needs over others?
3: Particularly in Warnersville, there was a, a sort of a reoccurring theme where people would come into the Warnersville and say, neighborhood, and oh, you guys need this. And so this is what we're going to do. And then after it didn't work, they would leave. There's a residual effect that happens when people come in and and try to create something and it doesn't work. So because I was from the neighborhood and I understood the culture of the neighborhood, I knew a little bit more, I knew what would work and what would not work because we've seen it before. The residents would be very leery of having anybody come in and try to create something when they weren't involved in the process. And they are very active um, within the neighborhood and they want to be involved they want to preserve number one the history of the neighborhood and the integrity of the people that live in the neighborhood um, but they also do want to see change but they want to see change on their own terms so throughout the book it's really conversations that Marianne and I have just trying to just kind of work through what we were experiencing so I remember the first when I heard the word food there's I was like desert Desert means desolate, like no life. You know, it means dry. It means, you know, when I think of a desert, that's what I think of. I think of the Sahara Desert, like just sand and hot and no life. So food desert was a USDA term that was
4: used to delineate neighborhoods that a certain number of the population lived below the poverty line and a certain number of the population was at least a mile away from a grocery store. And then a food swamp got used as an extension of that metaphor to talk about neighborhoods that had high concentrations of low-quality food.
3: And the USDA has moved away from some of that terminology. You know, when they come up with these terms, to me, it seems like there's a lot of racial undertones uh, associated with it because we all, a lot of people connect poverty with Black and brown um, communities, right? They say, okay, you know, they use some of these key terms like low income, poverty, desert, swamp to to make it seem like, you know, these people are suffering. If you're um, relating swamps to a specific area, you know, that area a lot of people do not want to come to. Right. Um, I always had a problem with how people would label, you know, certain neighborhoods because I just feel like that was a mis representation? Or are they trying to uh, take away from what their neighborhood is really like? For example, Warnersville was like a thriving community. At the end of the Civil War,
2: a Quaker educator, lawyer, and minister named Yardley Warner purchased land in southeast Greensboro, the area now known as Warnersville. He bought 35 and a half acres and then sold parcels to formerly enslaved people at low cost.
3: So they started developing and building themselves, and so it became a really thriving community back in the 1920s and the 1930s, the community where my grand- grandmother um, grew up in, and she would always say, you know, oh, we had this, we had movie theaters, we had beauty shops, and everything was blacked on, and everybody, you know, was, was doing their thing, and everybody loved it until, you know, um, rezoning came in, and, they, and everybody, they started um, breaking up people.
2: The Warnersville Community Garden required several years of planning by multiple stakeholder groups to open, and more importantly, to thrive. It currently operates with a paid farm manager and as an urban teaching farm. Understanding the neighborhood was key to breaking ground.
3: I will give an example of my grandmother. My grandmother purchased her house in Warnersville in 1960. And so during that time, people had their own gardens, like she grew tomatoes and cucumbers in the backyard, but they also were growing food for themselves. Now, there's a there's actually like a a connection between me growing my food myself and then me actually growing food for other people. I honestly feel like there's a. Something genetically or something within our DNA that triggers, uh, you know, times in which, you know, we were working for free. We were working in, in yards for free. We were working in fields for free. So there's a, like a, a connection to slavery. And I remember having a conversation with one of the people in the neighborhood and there was like, nah, we're over gardening. We're over that. We've moved on from that. And I'm like, Hmm, I see that there's actual, a, a negative connotation when it comes to growing food for other people and not just other people, but people that don't look like me, right? And so, um, you know, they kind of shied away from that. They didn't They didn't want to be involved. And plus, you know, a lot of the um, residents were older and they could no longer be in the yard or be in the garden, you know, pulling weeds or harvesting or watering because it was hot. And so that, that played a role too. Um, they were still kind of like hesitant to want to be open to the idea of new programming or community garden or urban farm, you know, that's one of the things if you, was, if you were to speak with some of the community members, you would have learned the historical reference of why they are questioning whether or not programs need to, need to be placed within the Warnersville neighborhood because of things like that.
2: Another case study looks at a series of pop-up and mobile farmers markets in Warnersville and other neighborhoods in Greensboro. It's really using a
4: a food truck model in some ways to make a location mobile so that you are getting the resource, the intervention, the food to the people where they are. And it was something that I think was particularly needed because we face a lot of financial constraints in Greensboro and Guilford County when it comes to starting up new food retail and business spaces. And we cover a little bit of that in uh, the Downtown Greensboro Food Truck Pilot Project intervention. We were able to get some policies changed that then made it possible for us to do things like mobile farmers markets and take food trucks onto institutional spaces. And so we were able to test out ideas like, is it easier to catch people where they live and try to do a mobile or a pop-up farmers market? Or is it easier to catch people where they frequently go. So for example, we had tested out some ideas at Cone Health Facilities, which is one of our major healthcare providers in Greensboro. So we were able to pop up the Mobile Oasis Farmers Market there uh, in one of their parking lots.
3: But we also set up shop at social services where a lot of people would go to apply for food stamps or WIC or whatever social service was needed. And so that was another uh, site that we felt would, would be very um, productive if we were to go to where people actually had, um, were able to get services um, for their families. And then they can also come in and get a peach or apple or some groceries using their, their EBT card. And we learned the need for the
4: SNAP, EBT and WIC, Through our initial pop-ups, that was the first big piece of feedback that we got from folks was that it's great that you all have this, but if you're going to do it long-term, you're going to need to be able to accept SNAP-EBT. And it also has created a space where then people realize that if you can incentivize people to use SNAP-EBT at farmers markets, that's also good for the farmers and for the local vendors as well, because those funds are staying in the community.
2: The book also examines downtown food truck legislation, an immigrant-owned restaurant tour called Ethnosh, as well as an incubator kitchen.
4: Addressing food insecurity is not only about addressing food access, it's about addressing intersections between access and poverty. And so okay. some of those programs help to address the poverty side of things by allowing people more, I guess, I guess, less financially risky entry points uh, into food markets, like through through the food trucks. Uh, it also encouraged people to um, buy food and support local restaurants through programs like Ethnosh and to support restaurants that are owned by immigrants and first-generation folks who are serving the food from the cuisines, from the background and culture that they come from. But then also creating some of those lower cost entry points, like through our kitchen incubator programs, so that people could test out whether or not they wanted to start up a food business without having to take on such huge financial risks as opening up their own kitchen to decide whether or not then they could sell their jams and jellies and sauces and things of that nature. But even more so, I think it's about changing the culture of the way that we talk about food, that... When we are willing to test out some of these ideas, we're continuing to center food as something that's important to our communities and our cultures. Honestly, I think the way that the intervention shaped the bigger picture conversations around food is the single biggest impact that all of those interventions combined had. Uh, Because if you look today, some of them are very different than when they started out. Some of them have completely different partnerships. Some of them have morphed into something different. Some of them are on hiatus. Some of them have ended completely. At the same time, everyone across the board in Greensboro and Guilford County will acknowledge that we now speak differently about food and food security than we did 10 years ago. We know a lot more about how food systems work. We know a lot more about how all of the different pieces fit together. And I think most importantly, we know more about how to work in partnership to create some of the networks that are needed to make sure that people have access to food. Uh, For me, this really came into sharp relief during the pandemic. Small businesses are closing, kids can't get food at school. How do we make sure that we're still using these relationships that we've built over the last 10 years? We were able to engage the community so quickly that within a week, we were able to move on to some of the mobilizing resources stages of it. We were able to do things like implement advanced ordering and drive-through pickup systems at two of our farmer's markets. So they never even had to close down during the lockdowns around COVID.
2: Since topping the Frac food hardship list in 2015, Greensboro fell to number 14 in the most recent study year. But the process of writing a book about some of these food justice strategies has brought up more questions than answers. Dr. Douglas wants to see a broader conversation
3: moving forward. The more we thought about it, you know, we were like, well, is it really a food issue more than it is a poverty issue? You know, should we not address the fact that people are still making $7 and 25 cents an hour and still are paying 800 plus a month in rent or um, still cannot afford childcare. You know, could we really say that that food is the issue if we don't address those problems first? I know when people make more money or people have more residual income that they do spend more money on good food. They want to make healthier choices. But I think these questions, it something that we as a collective as a community could you know just really have you know deep and meaningful conversations about because anytime we bring up poverty nobody wants to talk about it nobody wants to talk about raising the minimum wage nobody wants to talk about income-based housing nobody wants to talk about um, affordable health care you can't put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound because that's not the type of treatment or the type of uh, medication that you need to treat that type of problem. Those are the type of conversation that I'm willing to um, lead. I'm willing to be a part of. I would like to see other things that happen um, surrounding the conversation of food.
2: Everybody Eats, Communication and the Paths to Food Justice is available now through University of California Press. For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie. Find more
0: about the book and about the history of the Warnersville neighborhood at eartheats.org. After a short break, producer Toby Foster takes us on a journey towards the perfect pizza. Stay with us.
5: really appreciated about my time working at EarthEats so far is that I frequently get the chance to talk to someone who's really passionate about something. I love talking to someone who really wants to get into the nerdy details of a specific thing, even if it doesn't have anything to do with food. But it's even better when it does. For Pete Giordano, that thing is pizza. Ever since about the summer of 2020, all of my friends have been raving about Pete's pizza. It's something that he's been interested in for a while, but having just bought one of those gas-powered outdoor pizza ovens, he really doubled down on during the pandemic. Pete and his wife Leslie also used this as a way to stay connected with others during that first pandemic summer, and they bought a stack of pizza boxes so that they could bring them around to friends. He started ordering his flour in 55-pound bags, and managed to take a trip to Italy last year that, as far as I can tell, was basically just a challenge to see how many different types of pizza he could try. Pete and I have had mutual friends for a while now, and met briefly a few times, but I've never had the chance to try his handiwork. I decided to use my radio platform as an excuse to invite myself, my partner Ryan, and our friend Megan over for a little dinner party at Pete and Leslie's really lovely house behind Bryan Park. You'll hear them chiming in from time to time, and a little bit in the background too. Pete was nice enough to make us six different pizzas, answer all my pizza questions, and tell me about what he's learned and what the future might hold. After some snacks and some small talk, he took me into the kitchen and opened up a proofing box to show me six absolutely perfect looking balls
1: of pizza dough. All right, so the only ingredients in this dough, flour, water, salt, and yeast and the yeast is naturally occurring. So this is sourdough fermentation or natural fermentation. So really the only ingredients that you have to buy at a store are flour and salt. And I keep the starter and keep that fed, and then I use it to make this dough, sometimes like once every two weeks. <laughs> so where does where does the starter uh, live? The starter lives in my fridge in a little container. And you can see it's practically ready to overflow because it's all active from being fed today. And then I can basically just leave it in there for even more than a month. I've never had to leave it longer than that because I always make pizza again. But then I can just revive it whenever I want by feeding it again. It might overflow. (laughs) We'll see about that. I use Caputo double zero flour from Naples. Uh, It's a classic pizzeria flour in Naples. Generally for Neapolitan style pizza that's cooked at a super high temperature, you wanna use a different style of flour than like American bread flour because they react differently to the heat. So this is a flour that has very little processing and very high heat tolerance and it's perfect for that super hot oven setting. And that's what the double zero means? Double zero refers to the fineness of the grind, so it's super fine because of that designation. Which also helps make it be as smooth and glutinous as possible in the final dough. So is that hard to find in Bloomington? I buy it in these 55-pound bags through like a restaurant store and I just get it shipped to me. Buying it in tiny bags, like by weight, it's super expensive compared to giant bags, so... Well, the doughs look very nice. Yeah. So when did you start these? last night is when i started prepping the starter that ultimately went into these this final dough has risen for about nine hours which is kind of the classic for neapolitan pizza because in old school pizzerias in naples they didn't have refrigeration so there was no like super long fermented dough that's kept in the fridge it was always just however long it kind of naturally ferments takes like eight plus hours and then it's ready to go so these have been here for About nine hours and then
5: now what's our next step going to be?
1: So now we're going to stretch it out and get ready to put on our peel. Here. Alright, so we're going to get semolina flour out for the actual shaping. It's kind of just like little ball bearings, this coarse flour for the Mm -hmm. dough. It makes a great outer layer for the pizza to protect it from your hands and slide around on the peel. But it's not in the actual dough the dough is just all double zero flour Got it. all right so now i'm just rotating it and stretching it out and letting the weight of the dough mostly stretch itself in the colder months it's a little stiffer so it'll probably take a little bit to get it perfectly stretched out and so This is like mostly a pandemic hobby, or did it start before that? This hobby for me started a long time ago, probably about 15 years ago when I was in my early 20s, living with my best friend as a roommate. And we started making pizza just in the most like humble like mom 80s way with his mom's sauce recipe and making it in a sheet pan. But over the years I got more into gourmet food in general in my life and just had a lot more experiences with pizza and I gradually got more and more serious about it and a really big game changer for me was when they invented these at-home propane-powered pizza ovens that can get up to 900 degrees. It's a big change to not have to use a wood-fired brick oven to make pizza like this so that kind of made it possible for me to start doing full-on neapolitan style pizza and when did you get that i think i got that about three or four years ago maybe like 2019 yeah definitely pandemic was a good time for me to practice making pizza as much as possible hmm all right, we got this all stretched out now, so this first one is going to be super simple, just pizza marinara. In Italy, people typically just use tomatoes and salt, but I like a little bit of oregano and red pepper and garlic in here.
5: Is it a cooked sauce or
1: just blended? It is just straight out of the can, San Lozano tomatoes that have been very lightly processed. Okay. Uh, to kind of smooth them out a little bit. We got this oregano... In Italy, from a little shop in Amalfi, so, so well. authentic oregano in this case too. <laughs> I've got a little dried twig of it here, and I'm just gonna kind of crinkle it above the pizza. What do you think about the smell of that oregano? <laughs> Very floral smelling. Different variety of oregano is grown in southern Italy.
5: Despite being, as Pete said, just a little dry twig, the oregano is still very fragrant, and the simplicity of this pizza really lets it stand out. The only topping left to add is garlic that has been sliced and soaking in olive oil.
1: Got a bunch of sliced garlic here from Rose Hill Farm Stop in Bloomington. Chopped up and you've got it in some olive oil? Yeah, just in a little olive oil here to keep it from burning and to infuse that oil. Oh, okay. Alright my friend, this is pretty much good to go. A little olive oil finish it off. I always salt everything at every stage. (laughs) This is ready to go in the oven.
5: So we're going to take this outside. Let's take
1: it outside. Alright. Here we are at the oven. Let's go ahead and turn the heat down a little bit so we can slide the pizza in. This is 900 degrees in the ambient air. And this pizza is going to cook in less than two minutes because it's so hot.
5: I'm excited to see one of these in real life. I've seen
1: ads for them and stuff, but... They really live up to the hype, I have to say. I always have a knife out here, and there's always one bubble that comes up that I have to (laughs) pop with the knife, so I just sit and wait for it. (laughs) (laughs) So are we going to turn it halfway through, or just just leave it? If we do it perfectly, we'll be able to turn it two times and get it all evenly cooked. All right, look at that first crust. Got the signature leopard spots. I definitely don't mind if it's a little dark, but this is pretty perfect with the dark spots on the light crust. Yeah, that looks great. It's a fine line. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know how many pizzas I had to attempt before I successfully made even one pizza in this oven. Every single one of them, I was like smashing onto the front of it and like getting it stuck on parts of the oven and dropping them everywhere. When I started, I was making the dough way too wet because I was making it using the same recipes that I used in a home oven. I mean, it was total chaos, resulting in dough all over the oven. The good thing is, the oven gets so hot that it literally vaporizes anything that Mm -hmm. you like spill all over it. Yeah. All right, we're almost done. Gonna heat up our tray. Heat up the tray to not
5: cool down the pizza yeah, too fast. Yeah,
1: exactly. All right, this is done. Look at that baby steaming <laughs> away. Yeah, it looks amazing. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and taste it. All right, let's cut it. should hear a beautiful crunch if this is cooked correctly. There
5: we go. Is that the crunch you were looking for? <laughs>
1: That's right, that sounded perfect. I gotta say, I'm not just saying this for your radio story, but I'm very, very happy with how these pizzas came out. So it's <laughs> just good for our friendship. <laughs> this you is good can for our, our friendship. <laughs> okay, so we have six pizzas, so we have
2: to mm-hmm. eat six slices.
1: Okay. After this first slice, I will allow the subdivision slices. <laughs> so you can taste yourself.
5: It's true that there's not much better for a friendship than sharing a good meal together, and this pizza really is something special. I'll admit I haven't been to Italy, but I've eaten my share of Naples-style pizza, and Pete stands up to any of them. The crust is flavorful and just dark enough, the tomatoes are bright, and the oregano and garlic are given enough space to really come through. I would eat more, but there's still a lot of pizza yet to come. After a short break, I'll ask Pete about the San Marzano tomatoes he mentioned, and he'll walk us through the steps of a few more pizzas, or five. Stick around. Welcome back and thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Toby Foster and I'm talking with Pete Giordano about making pizza at home. Pete uses a gas-powered pizza oven that he sets up outside. We talked about the special double-zero flour that he orders and the oregano he brought back from Italy, but I was curious about the type of tomatoes Pete uses. I've seen plenty of San Marzano-style tomatoes in the grocery store, but I was pretty sure this was something different.
1: San Marzano is a region, and you can get DOP-certified tomatoes, which the Italian government regulates them. Those are guaranteed to be from that region, but also, moreover, they're guaranteed to be canned and handled according to very strict regulations that make it as good as possible.
2: Can you get those locally?
1: Yes. They've got a bunch of brands of San Marzano tomatoes at Little Italy, which is amazing because it's hard to find even one brand of San Marzano tomatoes, and they have like four or five at a time there. And there's it's lots of
5: trickers out there. I was gonna they, say, it's easy to find. Style.
1: Yes! Oh my god, there are so many fake-outs. There are these ones that, like, used to be very popular that used to say San Marzano and they changed them so that they say S-M. And, you know, no doubt they're not from San Marzano anymore. That's why you gotta get the DOP certified. Get those bureaucrats in there to make sure everything's above water. <laughs> I love that you can taste a little bit of the saltiness in the dough. Mm. It's always my favorite part
4: about your pizzas.
1: I never hold back on the salt, you really. know Salt is in both of my mantras. Flour, water, salt, yeast, and salt, fat, acid, <laughs> Once
5: the first pizza is mostly gone, Pete takes me to the kitchen for pizza number two.
1: Time for pizza margarita, the classic. All right, so we've got the tomato sauce. Then we've got The two traditional hard cheeses for pizza, Parmigiano-Reggiano and Pecorino-Romano. I like a blend of both of them. Put that on bottom so it doesn't burn in the oven. On the bottom bottom beneath the uh, mozzarella here. I gotcha. All right, here's our mozzarella. Now, I know this is not fresh mozzarella in this case because (laughs) that fresh mozzarella at Kroger has been getting super expensive. So I've got some Galbani whole milk mozzarella here. Which is maybe a little bit more what you would use for like New York style pizza. Mm -hmm. But I think this is the best value in Bloomington right now. Crumbled, not shredded. Yeah, I like to crumble it like this in the food processor because I kind of just, I like an even distribution. And also it's very easy to do it in the food processor. And then we can do the basil. Some people like to just throw the basil leaves all over the place and see what happens, but I like to obsessively lay them out so that there's a perfect distribution on each slice. So I'm ripping them up a little bit and then (laughs) placing them perfectly here. And I like that you're generous with the basil as well. Oh my god, people often put so little basil on. What's the point? (laughs) I agree. All right, we're ready to fire this one now. slide in our first pizza with cheese
5: here. While the margarita pizza was in the oven, I asked Pete about his trip to Italy last year. Judging from his Instagram photos, I think he might've eaten more pizza on that trip than I usually eat in an entire year.
1: That was a life-changing trip that I personally hadn't had the chance to go abroad since I was in college, which is like more than 15 years ago. So it was a big deal for us to get to go to Italy. And we went to Rome and Naples and to Salerno and the Amalfi Coast. But it was a real pizza pilgrimage in Naples especially where I got to go to some of the pizzerias that I've been seeing in videos and reading articles about for years. And getting to eat at all those places myself was amazing. I even got to meet one of my idols in Italy, Enzo Cochia from La Notizia a famous pizza maker and he picked our pizzas for us at his restaurant and chatted with me, so that was a really special experience. You just happened to be
5: there, or did you write to him ahead of time?
1: Well, we got there right as it opened because I was worried we wouldn't be able to get a table at this legendary pizzeria. They opened at, like, 7, and there were, like, no Italian people there yet. It was clearly too early for dinner, like, <laughs> for an Italian person. So it was surprisingly empty right at opening, and he was there, like, meeting with the staff, and after he finished his staff meeting, I approached him and he was super chill and generous about me coming up and wanting to talk with him. I told him that I went to Italy to eat at his restaurant and that was pretty true, so (laughs) he was very nice about it. Was that the best pizza you had on the trip? All of like the legendary places we went to really lived up to the hype and were just the highest possible standard of quality with minor differences in like style between them, so I can't really pick one. Look at that margarita. That looks very good. Oh my god, man! It looks super good.
2: Are you sure it's okay if we cut them in half?
1: Yes. In Let, Let me
2: get the scissors. We have six pizzas to eat. Yes. We did learn that pretty quick to cut them in half because when you first started making them, we we're just like whole piece, whole piece, and mm. then you did to the, the third one, you're oh, like, oh my god.
5: The margarita pizza is another winner. The crumbled mozzarella did make it more of a New York style pizza, which I think I actually prefer, and the hot oven melted it in just the right way, where a moment longer would have caused it to start to burn, but instead there's just a tiny bit of browning on top. I asked Leslie if she had any favorite pizzas from their trip.
2: They were also good, but we the very last one we had was in Salerno, and it was yellow tomatoes, Basil, lemon, and ricotta. ricotta. The lemon and the tomatoes were so amazing. And it was the last pizza. And then we left. That was at
1: Rudolfo Sorbillo's in Salerno. And I think my favorite pizza was at his uncle's pizzeria. His <laughs> uncle's pizzeria, Gina <laughs> Sorbillo's in Naples. So that was the family to eat with Sorbillo's. Yeah.
5: I guess this is what I mean about talking to someone who really wants to nerd out on the details of a particular obsession. It's so rare to find something that you like so much that you want to know which pizzeria owner is related to which other pizzeria owners. There's a joy to it that can be really infectious if you let it. Pete also printed out a menu for the evening, which I found to be really charming. Next up is another simple pie with potatoes and rosemary.
1: Alright, so here's a topping that not many Americans are familiar with. A pizza with nothing but potatoes and olive oil and rosemary. This is a signature pizza topping in Rome, pizza con potate. And we're going to do a version of it here. So it looks like you've got Gold potatoes. Did you use a mandolin or a food processor? Yeah, I used a mandolin to slice these Yukon gold potatoes. And I've got them all coated in olive oil. They're super thin. I'm just gonna lay them all over the surface of the dough here. A lot of people think this pizza is gonna be weird because it's just putting a starch on another starch. But believe it or not, the texture, like the potatoes kind of crisp and curl up a little bit and the flavor of the olive oil, the salt, and the potato is enough to carry it. You salted them already, or is that after? I have not salted these yet, because they might it might leach a lot of water out of them, and I just okay. want to leave them intact here. So i have got the whole thing covered in basically a single layer with them overlapping, yeah. maybe just a tiny bit. I'm going to put a few more on just because there's a few more potatoes, and I don't want to waste them. But it's pretty much ready to go here. The last thing, which is crucial, is to put some kind of fresh herb on this that complements potatoes. And the classic is rosemary, but you can also use thyme. You go heavy rosemary, just like a heavy basil. Alright. lots of Malden sea salt. A little black pepper, why not? It's pretty much out of black pepper, it's fine. just really just a little. <laughs> why not? Or you know, why at all? Yeah. <laughs> all right, what do you think, Van? Ready to go?
5: I think it looks great. I'm really impressed by how much you can
1: stretch it with all the stuff on it. Yeah, and it, it helps, really when it's weighed down, that really helps actually stretch it out that last bit. Push a little bit of that ash off of the plate here. Probably don't have to worry about bubbles forming on this one because it's got heavy potatoes weighing it down. Was there something that you've made before your trip to Italy, or did
5: you learn about this there?
1: I read about this type of pizza, so I was familiar with it. Made a big difference being able to see what I was reading about, though. Do you have any pizza
5: book recommendations? I know there's been a couple kind of recently that have come out that are like absolutely. that's what I'm looking for. Expansive.
1: <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Well, there's one book that I feel quite strongly about because it really helped me understand not just, like, the recipes, but the fundamentals of, like, why the recipes were the way that they are. And that's helped me get further with my pizza making in the long run. That book is The Elements of Pizza by Ken Forkish. The recipes are intended for a normal home oven rather than a one of these super hot ovens. But... Even still, I mean, it was really just learning the fundamentals from that book that made it possible to make these pizzas, too. Do you have any tips for making a pizza in a home oven? I think using a pizza steel helps. That's a nice accessory to have something really hot to cook on. Is that the same as a pizza stone? It's the same concept, and it looks similar, but it's stronger, sturdier, and it gets hotter, and it distributes the heat more evenly. So it's like a a pizza stone, but it works a little better. I think the most important thing, though, to making pizza at home is probably just the methods and the recipes, and to that point, that book, The Elements of Pizza, is perfect. The big difference between pizza made in a home oven and pizza made in this kind of oven is going to be the hydration level. because. The longer something cooks in an oven, even at a lower temperature, the more evaporation there's gonna be. So you need a lot more water to start in a pizza that cooks for 10 minutes. Pizza that cooks for two minutes needs very little water in it because there's not much chance for evaporation. That was what really doomed my first like 20 pizzas in this oven was them being so wet. (laughs) But now I understand that really well because I had all those learning experiences. Even though the pizza has only been cooking for about
5: a minute, the potatoes are starting to curl up on the edges and brown a little bit. Almost as if we're watching a time-lapse video of them turning into potato chips.
1: You wouldn't think necessarily that it's possible to cook a potato in two minutes and have it be done, but they're so thin and the oven is so hot that they truly are gonna be perfectly cooked. Look at that.
5: It looks great. Just a little bit of browning on some of the parts, but yeah. It
2: smells so good.
5: We all sit down to enjoy, and then it's time for pizza number four.
1: This is my wife and I's favorite white pizza, pizza with ricotta, no red sauce. So I'm putting some ricotta on the dough now first, and I've seasoned this ricotta with a little bit of lemon juice and salt and pepper. And then we're gonna top this with a little more cheese some kale that also has olive oil and lemon juice on it, and some pickled red onions.
5: This is like your your signature This is pie. a little bit of a signature pie, nice. yeah.
1: This one, we call this one the Sesame Street, because I forgot to say it also has sesame seeds on it.
5: Oh,
1: okay. All right, so we'll hit it with a little bit of the hard cheese for a little salt, Put a little mozzarella on there. Kind of blends in with the ricotta. Alright, so I've got the red onions here. I just cut this red onion up and poured boiling half vinegar and half water over it with a generous pinch of sugar and salt.
5: That's
1: it. It's ready to go in a couple hours. I'm squeezing all the juice out of these pickled onions so they don't make the pizza soggy. Look at that color, they're so bright. What kind of vinegar did you use? This is just your like Menards floor stripping vinegar. This is a nice white distilled <laughs> vinegar, just for kind of a neutral vinegar flavor here though. Plus it's dirt cheap, so it's good for pickling.
5: Mm-hmm. They are a very nice
1: color. It's gonna look like a lot of kale, but it all shrinks down and shrivels up. So just dump this dressed kale all over it. Every element we try to make flavorful before and after. Looks great. Alright. Ooh, wow, listen to that kale popping. That's all the water in those vegetables. It's just evaporating and bursting there. Another thing that I like ruined a lot of pizzas at first was trying to put them in uh, because, I don't know, I guess I just wasn't doing it smooth and confidently enough with the peel. Seems like you have to not be afraid. Yeah, I just gotta (laughs) stick it in there.
5: While the Sesame Street cooks, I ask Pete if he has any interest in moving this from a home obsession to a pop up or a food truck someday.
1: I have thought about that. I'm not too sure yet when and where that might happen, but it's something that I'm kind of workshopping now. It's a scary thing to make a living from food, as I'm sure you can relate to, my friend. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. yeah,
5: big jump for sure. Yeah. You go from just doing it for fun and friends.
1: Yeah, but I could see something in between with the pop-ups. It doesn't have to be my whole professional life, but it could be more than just the home. All right, look at that. The kale perfect oh. now. <laughs> it's kind of burnt. A <laughs> little burnt, but still perfect.
5: <laughs> I do hope that Pete is able to turn his pizzas into a business someday, at least to some extent. As he kind of alluded to, I used to own a restaurant, so I know that it can be extremely challenging, but also extremely rewarding. Although it's true that the kale is a little bit burnt, the combination is another success, with the earthiness of the kale balancing against the lemon and the pickled red onions adding some extra acidity that I think a white pie sometimes lacks. At this point, though, I'm also starting to worry how I will manage to eat any more pizza.
1: Here's one of my favorite pizzas. I call this one Double Dracula because it has garlic on it in two ways. I've got roasted garlic that I roasted in advance, and that's like soft and smushy. And I'll just kind of smear some of that in different spots. But then I've also got slices of garlic, fresh garlic, in olive oil, and I'll sprinkle those on the top and they'll cook in the oven. So we'll have the two types of garlic, and then I'll also put hot honey on it at the end, which is honey that's infused with chili peppers. Other than that, it's a normal tomato and cheese pizza. Here's our roasted garlic. This is always hard to distribute evenly because it's really soft. Mm-hmm. I just kind of break it into little pieces and drop them wherever. Now let's get the second kind of garlic in there, sliced garlic. It's gonna be really garlicky. I got a lot of this left. That's what it's all about. Oh <laughs> bam. We got all this olive oil that's got garlic flavor all over it. Look at that. Oh yeah. Beautiful. Alright, let's do it. There you go. It popped that bubble. It's getting big. And if you let the bubble get too big and burst on its own, then you might have a hole in the bottom where the crust is. Mm. And that's a big pain in the butt. This one might have a little hole in it, but I think it's holding together well enough to be fine.
5: And then we're going to put the honey on at the end?
1: Yeah, put the honey on at the end because it's uh, sensitive to the heat and would get obliterated in there. Just one more second. All right. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: So it has the honey on it. This is the Double Dracula. Two kinds of garlic, roast and sliced, and then
5: hot. Somehow I missed that this pizza is named the Double Dracula because of the garlic and Dracula being a vampire until a few weeks later. Although, wouldn't Dracula not want to eat this pizza? Anyway, it tastes great, whatever it's called. The last pizza of the night was listed as Mystery Box on the menu and was sort of an amalgamation of all the other pizzas.
1: This might be the first bad pizza.
5: (laughs) I also later learned that there's always six pizzas, because for some reason, when Pete tries to make any other number of pizzas, the dough doesn't turn out right. I'm not sure why. He sent it home with us because we were all too full to eat anymore, and it was great the next day. When I came over to record Pete making pizzas, my friends gave me a little bit of a hard time about it. What's the story, they asked. Local man likes pizza? Which, I mean, yes, but there's also something special about someone putting so much time and care and energy into learning how to make something really well and then sharing that with others. A lot has changed about how we eat over the last few years. Some people got used to just getting food delivered to their door each day. Some of us got used to the experience of going to the grocery store and seeing a certain shelf just completely empty for some reason. We've waited for our food to arrive at woefully understaffed restaurants and heard restaurant owners complain, with varying degrees of sincerity, that no one wants to work, when in fact people just don't want to work in certain conditions that were overdue for a change. And a lot of us went a long time without attending a dinner party, which is one of my favorite things to do, so it's not something that I take for granted anymore. And I feel lucky to have been able to share such great food with such great friends. And I also happen to learn quite a bit about pizza.
1: All right, mystery box pizza, not a huge deal. It's similar to that other one, but it's got tomato sauce, so it have some if you care for it, no big deal. I going to eat it. Yeah, thanks again for making us so much pizza. My pleasure, this is so fun, thank you guys.
4: I'm always down to eat your pizza. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Ayoban Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Samantha Schimmenauer, Peyton Welly, Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to Pete Giordano, Leslie Noggle, Ryan Woods, and Megan McDonald. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby. And performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.